Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Rachel Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She is also the director of the Hip Preservation Program, and she is an elected member at large of the Board of Directors of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. When I was a medical student at USC, I remember Dr. Goldstein being so energetic about the field of orthopedics and about her work with hip preservation, and it was truly inspiring as a medical student to see someone who was so happy and passionate about their work. I knew that with the inception of this podcast, I would eventually want to interview Dr. Goldstein, and I'm so happy to be able to share our conversation with you today. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Rachel Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you, um, and I'm just very, very happy to be able to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. Perfect. So my first question for you is in your own words, can you describe your background where you went to medical school, residency, fellowship, and your post fellowship years? Sure. So I went to medical school at Mount Sinai. I actually came to medical school through a kind of unusual path. I came through a program called the Humanities and Medicine Program which is a program for non-science majors. And you apply Mm -hmm. in the fall of your sophomore year of college. And then if you get in, you don't have to take orgo or physics or your MCATs. And they encourage you actually to study non-science topics. Um, And then you spend the summer between your junior and senior year doing some basic orgo and physics with them. And then you get to matriculate Mm -hmm. to med school. So this program opened up a whole world for me. Um, I became a sociology major. I learned a lot about um, stuff that sort of informed my decision to be to get a master's in public health. And I learned a lot about politics and uh, sort of the social ways in which we view health, which actually was really interesting for me and was super helpful in medical school and going forward. Well, speaking of your MPH, I do want to ask you why you wanted to get an MPH. The, I, what was your inspiration for pursuing that degree? Um, so when I was in college, I actually spent a semester in Washington, D.C., working for a think tank, doing healthcare policy work for them. Um, and I got mm-hmm. really interested in healthcare politics. That MPH has been really helpful in sort of understanding health and its impact on society, as well as I learned a lot about how to do research and be a good researcher that I've been able to apply ever since. Hmm. Awesome. So how has your MPH degree influenced your current practice as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon? So a couple of ways. Um, Our MPH program at Mount Sinai tends to focus more on community health. And so I think that's a unique perspective for people who are in orthopedics um, but it makes me think about healthcare delivery, how we're delivering healthcare to our patients and how they're receiving it. Um, I learned a lot mm-hmm. about sort of the understanding of health in different kinds of communities. And that's been really interesting to apply to the very diverse communities we see in LA. Um, and then mm-hmm. 
it taught me a lot about how to structure and run research projects, which has been essential in sort of my career going forward. Wow. Awesome. And so speaking of which, you are a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And so I was hoping you can describe to our listeners why you decided to become a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So I always wanted to do pediatrics before I even wanted to do orthopedics. I like kids as Mm -hmm. patients better than adults. Kids always want to get better. They have more interesting (laughs) problems to me. Um, and Mm -hmm. I feel like I relate to them better as patients. So originally I wanted to be a pediatrician and then I fell in love with orthopedics. Mm -hmm. So it was always going to be pediatric orthopedics. And I thought that was a little bit unusual, but I actually found out that some of my favorite pediatric orthopedists came to it in the same way. And Peter Waters actually even did a pediatric residency and switched residencies. Wow. That's impressive. Um, What does a typical week look like for you as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, so I spend about three days out of my week in clinic and two in the operating room. Um, And I usually, one of my three Mm -hmm. clinic days is usually a half day so that I have some administrative time in the afternoon. Um, Typically, I see patients Monday, Wednesday, and either Thursday or Friday in the office. And then Tuesday and the other day, I do surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, I do actually do surgery one day a month on adults, and I do that over at the main campus at USC. Oh, I didn't know that. Very cool. Um, so, Dr. Goldstein, you are the director of the Hip Preservation Program at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and I was hoping you can describe to our listeners what hip pr- preservation means. Absolutely. So, hip preservation is all of the surgeries around the hip to try to save people from needing hip replacements when they're older. So we actually understand Mm -hmm. really well how the hip works. And we know that somewhere around 80% of the pathology that we see in hips are things that we can correct before they go onto arthritis if Mm -hmm. we see patients early enough. So hip preservation looks to save your own hip joint. Um, And for me, that's everything Mm. from baby hips all the way up to people who need hip replacements. Um, I do surgeries to correct things like hip dysplasia or slip capital femoral epiphysis. I treat a lot of Perthes disease. So I see everything around the hip and I see up to any age until you need a hip replacement. Wow. That's amazing. So you're treating adults as well, but your treatment of adult patients is just basically centered, focused on the hip. Exactly. So I will see adult patients if they have any hip pathology at all. Um, And if it's something that I can fix and can treat, I will. And if not, I have a really great network of people who do things like hip replacements and hip arthroscopy that I don't do. Oh, very cool. What drew you to becoming an expert in hip preservation? I think the hip is fascinating and it's the joint I think that we understand the best. I've always liked big, open, sort of messy, for want of a better word, surgeries that are really involved. Um, And hips are, I think it's so interesting the way the hip works and that we have these surgeries that we can actually change the mechanics of a hip and make it work better. and hopefully prevent people from developing arthritis. I don't know that there's anywhere else in the body that we really can do that well. Hmm. Very cool. 
Can you talk about any research projects that you're currently working on with regards to hip preservation? Sure. Um, I, in general, work um, on a few multi-center study groups. The one that I'm really excited about right now is the Slip Capital Femoral Epiphysis Registry. So that's a study that's centered, the Slip Capital Femoral Epiphysis Study is centered in Vancouver, um, and there is over 20 institutions involved across the world. Uh, there's a retrospective arm and a prospective arm, um, and CHLA has already contributed about 250 patients to the retrospective arm. We have a lot of thoughts about how to treat skiffies, and we think we can make things better, but we don't really know. We don't know a lot about why mm-hmm. certain kids get this problem, and we don't really know if any of our more advanced techniques actually change the natural history of things. Mm-hmm. And so this is a... a attempt to try to understand that better. Perfect. Um, And I was hoping, speaking of the Skiffy trial that you're currently doing, you recently were the senior article or a senior author, I should say, on an article published in the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics um, entitled Slipped Capital Femoral Pyphosis in Children Without Obesity. And I think that this is such an interesting topic, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this research project. So first off, can you describe just to our listeners in general what a slipped capital femoral epiphysis is? Sure. So slipped capital femoral epiphysis, or SCIFI for short, is actually a condition that tends to happen in adolescence. And for whatever reason, the growth plate in the ball of your hip joint uh, gets, for want of a better term, gets sick. Um, and that allows the ball to slip mm-hmm. off of the neck. And so when that happens, it's almost like a fracture that happens over a very long period of time. And that causes a lot of pain, mm-hmm. limp, deformity, and can go on to cause worse problems and even result in kids needing hip replacements when they're very young if we don't treat it early. Uh, it is the most common cause of hip problems in adolescent patients. It is often missed. The average delayed, the average time to diagnosis is about 17 weeks from the time that someone has symptoms. Wow. Yeah, it's a really wow. long time. Um, and so uh, the thing that I was most interested in was uh, skiffies tend to be associated with obese kids. And we're all taught in medical school if you see an obese kid with hip pain, you should get an x ray. But I, one of my first patients in practice was a nationally ranked track star. No one would call her obese. She was even a little bit skinny for her age. And she developed a skiffy that was completely missed because no one would think that a girl like this would have a skiffy. She had no risk factors at all. And by the time we got to her, her hip was pretty severely damaged. Um, and that basically led her to no longer be able to run track. Um, Now she's not able to really walk with a normal walk. And so I became more and more interested in why those patients would get a skiffy. They don't have the mechanical issues. Um, So we looked at three centers, our institution, Boston Children's, and Atlanta. And we looked to see if we could find some things about the patients who were what we called skinny skiffy patients. Um, So people who were normal or underweight. And what we found was pretty interesting. Uh, Skiffies tend to be more common in boys than girls, but in this population, it was more common in girls. So females tended to be skinny skiffies. Um, 
The other thing we found that was fascinating to me was there actually is a geographical difference. So we saw fewer skinny skiffies in LA than they saw in Boston. And Atlanta was somewhere in the middle. Don't actually know what to make of that. And I'm hoping that this big retrospective multi-center study that is being done out of Vancouver will give us more data for more institutions that might help us start to figure out why this is happening. Very cool. Um, I think it's just so interesting because everyone, like as you said, had focused on you know, Skiffy is always something that's in obese patients. And the fact that um, you had looked at this in um, a skinny, quote unquote, population was just so fascinating to me. Um, and I love the fact that it started off with just such a personal story. Um, so I do want to kind of go back to your work to get the Masters of Public Health and why it is that you decided to go back to Los Angeles, because Los Angeles is very much a diverse population, um, and you had done your residency in New York. And so I was wondering what inspired the move from the East Coast to the West Coast. So I joke with people that the reason I wound up here is because of the match gods, um, I had no idea that I was going to live in Los Angeles. I had a life plan. It didn't involve living on the West Coast. Um, but I applied here for fellowship. And that year was extraordinary for me. Children's Hospital Los Angeles is just such a magical place. Um, I had never really worked in a children's hospital before, so I was clearly swayed by that to begin with. But um, the people who are now my partners it was just amazing to work with these people. They were such great mentors and, you know, someone like Vern Tolo, who was president of the Academy and president of POSNA and editor of JBJS would walk by my office and ask my thoughts on something. And I'm like, I couldn't believe how collaborative and cooperative this group was. And they are so supportive and they have been so great for my career. So about halfway through my fellowship, I started a campaign begging them for a job. Um, and I went to Boston after LA for a year to do hip preservation fellowship. Um, and I kept up my campaign and the nurses at CHLA would ask on a regular basis, are you going to hire Rachel? And I remember it was Christmas Eve, it was snowing and Dave Skaggs called me and said, Hey, is this a good time to talk about you coming back to CHLA for a job? And I was like, yes, yes it is. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, I do want to talk to you because you are one of the first uh, female attendings that I have interviewed that are um, probably in like the beginning part after their fellowship. And I was wondering if you can talk about how you look at your career in terms of where you want to be in five years and in 10 years and what your goals and aspirations are and how it is that you know, you're doing so much work at CHLA and, you know, uh, starting your work to, you know, become a part of AOS membership boards and leadership boards. And I was wondering how you view, um, you know, putting your pieces in place, so to speak, such that you'll be a leader in the field of orthopedics. Yeah. Um, so I actually, in some ways, feel like I'm really ahead of where I thought I would be right now. And I think that comes down to having amazing mentors. So I was lucky enough to meet Jen Weiss before she left CHLA and went to Kaiser. And she's been such a fantastic mentor in teaching me how to be a better leader. Um, and then I have such great mentorship at CHLA as well. And so 
having people who are confident in you, even from the very beginning of your career is so incredibly helpful. And so when I got nominated for the AOS board of directors, I was like, this is unbelievable. Like, are you sure you want me? I had a little bit of imposter syndrome going on. I still sometimes do. Um, But I feel super lucky because, you know, privately I get phone calls from people who are like, I think that you're doing a good job. You could do this better. Here's how you could be more involved. And that mentorship has been so helpful to me that it has changed what I expect of myself in five and 10 years. And I want more and more and more. Um, Leadership has become the thing that's most important to me. I really enjoy being very involved in guiding where our field is going. So I like teaching residents. I like teaching fellows. I love talking about my job. Um, I jokingly told one of the um, foundation members at CHLA that I've not had a boyfriend in the last five years who can't recognize a skiffy on x-ray because I enjoy talking about that so much. (laughs) Oh my God, that is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I think in the next five to 10 years, I'd like to get more involved in POSNA leadership and stay involved with the AOS leadership. Um, And I'd like to continue to be very involved in these big multi-center study groups because I think that's the future of research. Um, And I'd like to continue to teach and develop that. I'm the residency site director at CHLA, and I'd like to continue to be very involved in resident and fellow education. So I kind of, I feel like I got very lucky and got started on a very good path and I'd like to keep it going. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, Did you, what is it that you think that someone like the residents and the medical students, what is it that they should be doing in order to set them up themselves up for success in order to be the future leaders of orthopedics? What do you think that we should be doing while we are in our training? I think mentorship, mentorship and mentorship. When you see people doing things that you think you might want to do, introduce yourself when people are offering you opportunities, take them up on it and then stay connected with the people who are supporting you. I still talk to my, you know, people from residency and fellowship. And I do that because not only because I miss them, but because they provide me with so much support and they make it possible for me to do the things that I want to do. So I think that it's a really, I think medicine itself is very difficult without mentorship. Um, it's hard to go to work every day and try to be out there totally on your own. And so having people who support you both in and out of the operating room is essential. I still remember like my first year in practice having a super hard case and it was 7 PM on a Friday night in LA, which makes it 10 PM in Boston. And I scrubbed out and called one of my mentors from fellowship at 10 PM on a Friday night. And he answered and answered my questions and helped me through the case. So I, you got to have people like that in your life at every stage. Yeah, that's amazing. How, um, what is it that you think the skills are that a good mentor possess? Like, what is it that you think um, makes a great mentor? Um, I think that mentors uh, serve different purposes at different times in your life and they all bring different things to the table. So I think that as a mentee, knowing what you need and want is very helpful. And then as a mentor, 
sort of starting to understand how you can help the people around you. Um, I go back to Jen Weiss again, because I hope at some point in my life that I can be half as good of a mentor to people as she is. Um, but really great mentors are people who see certain qualities in the people that they work with and help them rise up to the, their best abilities. That's amazing. Um, I do want to talk to you that I know that there are times where, you know, orthopedics is this amazing field and we're doing so many, many amazing things and we feel like we're helping people. But I also think that there are times when, you know, life is hard and our job is hard and we face whether it be just a hard uh, clinic or, you know, a bad day in the OR or just there's an experience with one of our colleagues that just doesn't go as well. And so I was hoping you could describe what strategies you have utilized to kind of go uh, surpass the adversities that you sometimes face as a female orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of techniques. One is I have um, a couple of really great colleagues and I was lucky enough to have probably my best friend from out here. She actually got hired not so fo- not so long after me. And so I basically have my best friend at work. And so we, we share an office, which is super helpful. Um, so she's my support and I provide her with as much support as I can. Uh, and then when I need to get away from work, I run a lot. I love running. I think it's a really great way of sort of focusing my energy. It's my moving meditation. And through running, I've made a lot of really great friends who are not doctors. And it's nice to have people in your world who are not physicians because they remind you of how cool what you do is. And they like they remind you of the awe that you should have for your job that we often forget in the day-to-day. Uh, but it's so great to have someone say something like, oh, you're a doctor? That's so cool. You're so lucky. Um, you know, in LA, I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are involved in the industry and they have no idea what we do. And they are so fascinated by our jobs. I'm totally fascinated by their jobs. But uh, that reminder sort of sets everything straight for me. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh is there any topics, because I, I think we're nearing the end, are there any topics that you would want to talk about um, that we haven't discussed? Because I, uh, we, I, we were very efficient with the beginning part of our script. I don't know if I told you all the parts, like the sort of college, med school, residency. I got a little sidetracked with the Mount Sinai stuff. Yeah, I would love to hear kind of more about your background in terms of, um, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Okay. Um, so I went to Mount Sinai for medical school. And when I was there, I actually took a year off between my third and fourth year. Um, and I did that because I fell in love with orthopedics the first rotation of my third year. And I had no orthopedic experience, had nobody in my world who knew anything about orthopedics. And I figured I needed a year of research to really figure out if this is what I wanted to do. Uh, I was already in the MPH program, but it let me take more classes in the program. And I also worked on my master's thesis that year. Um, And then after I graduated, I went to NYU to the Hospital for Joint Diseases for residency. And then I went to Children's Hospital Los Angeles for a pediatric orthopedic fellowship. And I did a second fellowship in hip preservation at Boston Children's. And then my parents told me to stop doing fellowships and grow up and get a job. So then I did. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. Um, 
I, what I love about your story is just kind of how it, things just kind of happened where it's just kind of, it wasn't as though there was this like plan where it's like, I know I was going to do this and I was going to do this and I was going to do this, where it was oftentimes where just kind of things kind of took you to places and you fell in love with it. Um, and I was hoping you could kind of talk about, um, what that has, you know, are you hoping for that process to continue or do you have more of kind of a plan of exactly what it is that you're you see the next five years and 10 years of what you're going to do? Um, I think I've gotten really lucky with falling in love with things work-wise. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon when I was a little kid. I think I was like nine and I broke my wrist and had like a buckle fracture or something. And I thought orthopedics was so cool. And I told the orthopedic surgeon who was taking care of me that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon when I grew up. And this was a really small town. And he was like, girls don't become orthopedic surgeons. And so I was like, oh, Okay. Um, so, you know, in my head, I started thinking more and more pediatrics. And then I, when I went into my first operating room as on my orthopedic rotation as a third year, I saw a knee replacement. Um, and I still remember it was Dr. Michael Parks. He will probably never remember me, but I will never forget him because I watched him do this knee replacement and I could not believe that it was okay to just cut out pieces of people's knee and replace it with metal and plastic. And then someone was going to make this person get up and walk the next day. And I was completely floored. And so I completely fell in love with orthopedics and changed everything that I had planned and went back to this idea that I'd had when I was nine. Um, and I actually really hope my career continues that way where I fall in love with something and pursue it. It's, it's so much better than having everything all planned out. No, that's amazing. I think I had the similar experience where I remember I, when Dr. James Lee Pace was at uh, CHLA, I saw, you know, pediatric ACL reconstructions and how um, I remember being in the OR and it was the first, one of the first surgeries I had ever seen. And I remember just thinking, how are they allowed to do such a thing to a human knee? <laughs> it seems crazy what we do, right? So crazy. So crazy. So it was just a, such a hilarious moment where I, I remember being like, oh my God, this is insane. And then you fall in love with the fact that you're able to just allow patients to get back to the lives that they had. Um, uh, yeah. So that's just amazing. Um, Dr. Goldstein, I do want to talk about the future. And I know that we've kind of touched on some things uh, throughout our conversation, but I was hoping you can kind of talk about the future goals and, and ideas that you have with regard to not only what you want to do clinically, but also with regards to research as well as leadership. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough that when I came to CHLA, they basically hired me to create the hip preservation program. And so they've given me a lot of leeway in figuring out how to make that work. And I had trained someplace like Boston that had, you know, 30 years of experience of hip preservation program. And shockingly, me walking in the door did not make that happen at CHLA. Um, so it's been my long, sort of long-term goal at this point to grow the hip preservation program. Um, I've made some connections now in the community. Uh, I have a really great hip arthroscopy partner over at USC, which has allowed me to really truly build this program and it's my goal over the next 10 years to have us be as nationally recognized as places like Boston and Wash U for hip preservation and through doing all that I really want to continue these big multi-center collaborative studies because I think that's where the future of medicine is I don't think anyone sees enough patients to do single center studies anymore we really 
undervalue how important it is to have thousands of patients and not just a hundred. And I just hope to continue to get to be as involved in the academy and get more involved in POSMA leadership because I've learned so much just in my year on the board. I'm so excited for another year of doing this. Um, and uh, the sort of experiences that I've gained and the confidence that I've gained, and I don't actually have words for how incredible this year has been. Wow, that's phenomenal. And congratulations for everything that you've you know been able to accomplish at CHLA and at the Academy and research wise. So and I just it's uh, it was very it's nice to just hear your story. And as someone who is at a med student at USC, so it's amazing. Thank you. I do want to go into the last questions that I have for you called the final five, which are the final five questions I ask everybody. And so my first uh, final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Um, I have two and they're kind of tied in my head. I was trying to figure out which one I like the best. Um, I love a surgical hip dislocation, which is essentially just an approach to the hip, but I think it's insane yeah. that we can take the ball out of the socket and do whatever work we need to do on both the ball and the socket, and then we can put it back in. I think the anatomy is beautiful. You can see so much when it's done well, and you have so much access to the hip joint. So I really enjoy that. And then my other favorite surgery is an open reduction of a baby hip. And I love that because those are so satisfying to me. I really enjoy getting to meet patients when they're that young. Um, it's scary to let your baby go through surgery, and I like being a part of that journey for parents. Um, the surgery itself is a lot of fun to get the ball back into the socket, and then I get to watch these kids grow up, which is really cool. I mean, who else gets mm -hmm. to do that in orthopedics? Who else gets to meet someone as a baby and watch them? I, I hope to continue to watch them until they go off to college. I'm not quite senior enough yet, but watch them go to school for the first time and things like that. It's pretty amazing. What's so funny is I'm actually on my pediatric PD ortho rotation right now. And we actually just had a open dislocation reduction on our service. And it's insane how I've done, you know, the Smith, Smith Peterson approach so many times in an adult, but when you're doing it in a little child, it's, it's so different and you get that nice little hip socket in and it's just like a satisfying little clunk. Yeah. Um, Bob K has this thing where when once you've cleaned out the socket, you actually put your finger in the socket and you should get a suction effect when you try to pull your finger out. And that's how you know the socket's clean. But I love that. You put your finger in and you get that little suction effect. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> that's so true. So true. Um, my next top, uh, question for you is what are your go to topics for grand round presentations? Um, my favorite to give is called hip function and dysfunction. So I love to talk about how the hip works and then how it can go wrong and how we can fix it as hip surgeons. In young folk or in adults or both? Um, I, have two I have two talks, one where it just focuses on adolescent and young adult and one that starts with babies and goes all the way up. But I stay away from hip replacement. I have people who know hip replacement better than me do those talks. Nice. I remember you gave a lecture to us um, and when we were talking about skiffies, you had, I forget, I think it's like chunk or something from the Goonies. Yeah. Oh my God. That was, that was hilarious. I still um, have that picture in my skiffy talk and I still ask the med students and the residents if they know who that is. And if they don't, I tell them to go home and watch Goonies. I, I think it's necessary. Very much so. Um, what is your favorite um, story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? 
Um, so I had a few, but I realized they all kind of go together and they're super fitting with the theme of your podcast. I've had three patients now who have gone through their orthopedic journey with me who decided that they wanted to be orthopedic surgeons when they grew up. And all three of them have done peri-initiative events this year and felt like just fell in love with orthopedics and they're high school students who now will be our colleagues in however many, 10, 15 years. Um, and one of them was that Skiffy who inspired the Skinny Skiffy research. Um, another one was actually another Skinny Skiffy. That's interesting. Two Skinny Skiffies um, and one regular weight Skiffy. <laughs> but the sort of watching these girls discover orthopedics and then having tools like the Perry Initiative to point them in the right direction, even in as early as high school. And then to hear them talk about it afterward has been probably the best experience in my orthopedic career so far. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so I know that you did talk about uh, running, but um, so is running basically your favorite activity outside of the operating room and um, um, outside of medicine, or do you have other activities that you like to do for fun? So running is certainly my favorite and it's LA. You lived here, you know, it's like trail running Mecca. You walk out your front door and it's right there. So running is my most favorite. I also have gotten into triathlons. So I swim and I bike, um, but definitely nothing beats running for me. Fantastic. Um, and finally, Dr. Goldstein, my last question for you is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? So I have two pieces of advice. One, keep pushing. When you're a second year and you're a third year as a resident, it doesn't ever seem like it's going to end. And it's hard to remember why you signed up for it in the first place. But it gets really good. It gets really, really good. So don't give up, even when it doesn't seem like it's always so fun. Um, residency is not what it's like to be an attending. And my other piece of advice is when you meet your mentors, hang on to them. I, when I was a medical student, met a intern who was in orthopedics, and he has guided me through every single stage of my career since that time. He helped me decide where to apply for residency. He talked me through fellowship applications. He talked me off a ledge when I thought I was never going to find a job. Um, and now I'm on the AOS board of directors, and he's actually on the board of specialty societies. So we see each other at all these meetings, and we always plan at least one run where we catch up and we talk through things. And he will always be my mentor, even though he jokes that he thinks that I've surpassed him, but not at all. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, oh, amazing. So Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix a Podcast. I really appreciate you spending the time with me and sharing your story on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are also on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we know we're going to bring you a great episode next month. Thank you guys so much. Thank you.